Started months ago going through the books of the Bible with Genesis and uh, went through the Old Testament, took a little bit of break in the middle and did a, another topical study and then picked up on Matthew. And now we're right smack in the middle of the, um, the general epistles. And the book of Hebrews is a great book, of course written, its name is the book Hebrews because it's written to Hebrew believers. Now I believe that's really important. If you feel like the book of Hebrews is written to unsaved people, you're going to get really squirrely on eternal security. You need to understand it's written to believers. And we feel like that's, that's, the, that's the foundation that, uh, that the author puts. Now, interesting enough, we know who wrote most of the books of the New Testament. We do not know who wrote the book of Hebrews. It's one of those things that you just uh, you can't speak with, uh, with strong confidence now, most people, and I would probably be in that group, would think the Apostle Paul uh, wrote the book of Hebrews. Those who do not believe that would argue uh, this in chapter 2 and verse number 3, where the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 3 that um, he, uh, he picks it up with, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken of by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? And so uh, some people believe because of that verse right there that he tells us in Galatians that, that, that the Holy Spirit, that God, uh, the Lord Jesus, was the one who convinced him of the resurrection of the Savior and he wasn't influenced by other disciples. But I think it's kind of weak, quite frankly, but uh, we'll just accept it as that may be an argument there. Some other people think it might have been Barnabas who God used to write the book of Hebrews, but you can see a lot of parallels in Paul's writing, but Barnabas would know Paul and would have a similar thing. And then other people believe it might have been Apollos. Apollos was someone who was very knowledgeable of the Old Testament. He was very eloquent. And matter of fact, the church at Corinth, especially the Jewish believers in Corinth, especially love to hear Apollos speak. But that really doesn't matter. I think one of the reasons why it's probably its author is not revealed to us is sometimes if you read Louis L'Amour, you kind of know how he is going to end things. If you read an Agatha Christie mystery, you might already know kind of if you're going to read an article on uh, maybe some conservative writer in the New York Times or if that's even possible to have a conservative writer there. If you, if you know how someone feels about something, you already know that's going to be their slant. And it looks like to me that God had a message to deliver to Hebrew believers who were experiencing a lot of persecution, difficulties, and a pressure. Now, they had accepted Christ, but there was a big draw to Judaism again after they had received salvation. They had grown up sacrificing lambs every year. And when they did that, there was a very special spiritual um, release that they experienced. They were used to that. Some of you who might have come from other religious organizations or institutions or churches growing up, you might remember like maybe Christmas Mass, Christmas Eve Mass, or some of the things that you're very used to. You knew when to kneel, you knew when to stand up, you knew the Our Fathers, and you kind of got used to that, so you kind of knew that, and, it, and it, it brings you back into your childhood or into, into this. Well, these folks were really 
experience. They, they used to go to the, the temple and the high priest would get up there and he would have all the, the, uh, the tops, the hats and the, the linen ephod and everything was so beautiful and, and organized and clean and pure and he would do that. They were used to it. Now the people that were speaking to them were like former fishermen like Peter, James, John. They were just disciples. They were just regular guys, and they weren't necessarily giving their talks in the temple. They were doing it in backyards and fields, and, and so it was just a little bit different for that. And, and they had used to be used to doing all these ceremonial rituals, and now they're, they're, being, they're learning that they're not really necessary. Because in the, the Pauline epistles, Romans is the start of Paul's writing. And Hebrews is the start of the general epistles writing. And Romans takes you from the law to grace. And Hebrews takes you from shadows to substance. He begins to show you that all these things are, are, to, are to show you about Jesus. And so he's going to kind of convince his Hebrews because there are three things that usually new believers struggle with when they first get saved. They get saved, they oftentimes are pulled back by family, by friends, and by systems and fellowships. It's very challenging. I, uh, I uh, think about, I was talking this morning to Brother Greg Pine, and he said, you know, I was a, I was a drunk and I was a drug addict and all kinds of problems. And then when I get saved, people are like, oh, that Greg needs help. Man, he needs help. But then I get saved and I come to Jesus and all that goes away. And then my friends, are, my friends and my family are like, hey, man, well, you're getting a little overboard here. This is getting crazy. How many times have I led someone to Christ and then a false cult, an uncle or aunt and a false cult, all of a sudden they get saved, they're so happy, and then all of a sudden they're going to the kingdom hall. I'm thinking, what in the world? They didn't do that before. Now, I've had the opportunity to see people come away from, from some of those horrible lifestyles, and then all of a sudden they get saved to be and going, then all of a sudden they get problems from their grandparents. They get problems from their parents, or there's the friends and the family, and systems and fellowships begin to pull them away. Well, the Jews were experiencing that. They'd accepted Christ as their Messiah. They're believers now. But now there's pressure on them. And they can't help it. I say they can't help it. But they're going into these head-scratching moments, and they're asking themselves, is it worth it? Is it worth it to go through the suffering, the rejection, the, 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 the pain, of, uh, and, and missing out on some things that I used to feel like they were spiritual and good, and, and now my, my family is pushing against this, and the fellowship and the group and the friends are now ostracizing against me because of this. And they're wondering if, if it's worth it. And God, through his inspiration of the Scripture in Hebrews, I think has one goal in mind, to remind them that Jesus is better. Whatever you have to get over or change or say goodbye to, Jesus is worth it. If it's friends, if it's family, if it's fellowship, if it's Old Testament, whatever it is, Jesus is better. And it's a beautiful book of the Bible. You can see our key verse, if you would please, look at Hebrews chapter number 10. You'll see that Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 10, 11, 12. And boy, it's really hard to pick 
a key verse in Hebrews, in my opinion. But you'll see here that in verse number 10, it says, by which, chapter 10, verse 10, by which we all are sanctified through the offering of the body of whom? And then how, how long is this, is this offering and sanctification good for? Once for all. And every priest standing daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But would you read verse 12 with me? Are you ready? But this man. Forever. Set down. So he's going to talk a little bit about that. Let's pray that God will help us, can we? Dear Lord, please thank you. First of all, thank you for the great day. Thank you, Lord, for these wonderful people that have stopped their midweek uh, work and travels and have left homes from all over this area. We've got beautiful young people from Chicago who got on a bus at 5.30, 6 o'clock this morning, went to school, went out soul winning with Brother Torres and our, uh, those who, who represented him today because he's on senior trip. But, and now they're making their way back here for church. And then we'll get on a bus and go back to Chicago later on this afternoon and this evening after the service. Thank you, Lord, for people who've worked very hard. And yet they have come to Wednesday night service. Please speak to our hearts. Thank you that Jesus Christ is better. I pray that we would leave there with that understanding that he is better. And we would rejoice in this, we pray in your precious name. Amen. A couple things that just if you look in your Bible study worksheet, I want you to notice that here are some key words in the book of Hebrews. Number one, the, the, the word better. It's found 13 times in the book of Hebrews, and we'll talk about that on lesson section two there a little bit. The word heaven or heavenlies is found 15 times. So whoever God used to write the book of Hebrews, he focused on the word better, speaking about Jesus, and the heavens and the heavenlies, and that's where Jesus lives. The other words is let us. He kind of comes to a, he, he'll, he'll build a case, and he says, now, let us do this, not let us like you put on your hamburger. Okay, he'll say, Dick, I knew I'd get something out of you with that right there. Hamburger and Dick Kennedy, they just go together, you know. No, not let us put on a hamburger, but he'll, he'll say, if you believe this, then let's do this. And let's move on. Let's grow up. He'll mention that several times. Let's go on to maturity, to better things. Let us. And then, once... For all, We even read that just a moment of time, and it says, uh, we'll go back to chapter 10, verse number 12, and look at that, just kind of, just a quick thought there you might enjoy. And um, verse number 10, but this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. This is kind of interesting, because I understand in the Jewish, uh, the, the high priest and the priest who worked in the temple there was no place. It was standing the whole time they were there. There was no place to sit down in the temple around the holy place or the holy of holies. So wherever there was sacrifice being made, there's no place to sit. Why? Because that man would have to go home and he had to sacrifice again tomorrow and the next day. And that guy would have sacrificed for his own sins. And that was one of the cases uh, that God puts the uh, author to do to show us that, that. But Jesus, when he offered for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. We know that he stood up again when, um, when Stephen came to heaven. Remember that? 
What does Stephen say? I see Jesus what? Standing at the Father's right hand. Well, he got up when the first martyr came home to heaven after, uh, after the crucifixion. But he sat down because it was forever done. One and done is what uh, Hebrews is about. Jesus is better. Well, with that in mind, let's look at the outline. I'll make a couple applications, and we'll conclude this evening. Look at the outline. Christ is better. He's better than, number one, the Old Testament prophets. Let's just go look at the first few verses of Hebrews, would you please? Hebrews chapter 1. Thank you for bringing your Bible. Teenagers, thank you for being here. I know you're used to having your, your, um, your meeting across the street. And all of our workers, my goodness, for our Transformer Kids Club workers, for our teen workers, how I appreciate that, our, our nursery workers, our security, all those who labor at a service or two every week so that we can enjoy service. I appreciate that very, very much. Number one, uh, page number, uh, chapter one, verse number one, God at sundry times and in diverse manners at different times and different ways, he spake in times past unto our fathers by whom? The prophets. And hath in these last days spoken to us by whom? His son, whom he hath appointed heir of how many things? Yeah, by whom also he made the worlds. Who, Jesus, being in the brightness of his glory and expressed image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, set down at the right hand, uh, of the majesty on high. Once again, referencing Jesus, no other priest would do that. Jesus sat down. Why? Because he finished the work that God called him to do. But Jesus, number one, is better than the prophets, the Old Testament prophets who ministered. Number two, he's better than angels. I'll have you look at that later, but chapter one and two, um, one of the things that really, you look at the Old Testament, you'll see that angels keep popping up. Okay, angels are messengers of God. Most of the time, when you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, most believe that's a Christophany. That's a Old Testament appearance of Jesus. But it was a messenger. Even we find in the New Testament uh, that Philip, the angel of the Lord, came to Philip in Acts chapter 8 and told him, go out into the way that's called desert, which is into Gaza. And he would go there, and the angel of the Lord said, go and minister to the Philippian, or excuse me, the Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip went and did that. But the angels, they were excited. And, and of course, people were very excited if they got a visit from an angel. You might remember Gideon getting a vision, a visit by an angel. Mary, when she found out she was going to be the bearer of the Christ child, it was the angel of the Lord. That wasn't Jesus, uh, but it was an angel of the Lord that came and messenger and told her, you're highly favored. And you're going to have the Christ child. And so an angel visit was very pronounced. It means that God was speaking. But he said, you know, Jesus is better than the angels. Uh, Jesus is better than the prophets. Look at the next one. You'll see in uh, Moses, chapter 3 and 4, he'll talk about he's better than Moses. Uh, all the, uh, the Jewish people, certainly, they, they really um, idolized Moses and Elijah. Moses is mentioned in the New Testament 101 times. He's the, definitely the main patriarch apart from, I mean, Abraham as well. But Moses is mentioned more than Abraham in the New Testament. So, but Jesus is better than Moses. He's also better than Joshua in chapter 4. And then he's a better Levitical priesthood in chapters 4 through chapter 7. And the end of there, he's a better priest. 
And that was going to be something that they had to, they had to deal with. So he's building a case that, listen, Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. And he's better than, uh, than uh, a better high priest for us. And he's going to go on to tell that. There's several other things, letter two there, you'll see, that Christ bestows better benefits. Not only is he better, he gives us better. He can give us better. Better, number one, better promises. Look at chapter 8, verse number 6. Let's look at that and just read it together. Can we all read it out loud together? Chapter 8 of Hebrews, verse number 6. Let's look at it. And let's read it together. You ready? But now hath he obtained a more, by how much also he is a mediator of a better covenant very good. He's going to use the word covenant and, and uh, in also in number three, letter C there you see. But he bestows a better benefit and better promises, a better sanctuary, a better place to meet with God, a better covenant, letter C, letter D, a better country. You might see that in chapter 11, verse 16, whenever he's talking about Abraham and his, and his descendants and Isaac and Jacob. They were looking for another country, a better country, whose builder and maker was God, a better country, a better place to live your eternity, and then a better sacrifice. And that is basically chapters 9 through chapter 10 is that he tells us there is not the blood of bulls and goats that can forgive sin, but it's the precious blood of Christ. That only temporary, it was a shadow. The substance is the Lord Jesus Christ. Then letter, letter 3, if we can, please, Roman number 3, Christ empowers us not only He's not, he's only better than, he has better benefits, but he empowers us to live better. And uh, this is where it kind of culminates, if you will. So if you can read the book of, uh, of Hebrews and understand it's written to Christians and it's trying to remind people that Jesus is better. All the other things in the Old Testament are types and shadows. Jesus is the substance. How many remember what uh, Hebrews 11.1, 1, and sometimes it's a little bit a hard verse to understand. Uh, so then, uh, so then uh, faith is the substance of things what? The evidence of things. Okay, so basically the first 10 chapters he is talking about, he's laid his premise. God is telling us, listen, whatever it is that's scratching your head and making you think that it's not worth it, live a Christ Live for, live for Christ and stay faithful to him for all your life. You need to get back to the person of Jesus. Who he is, what he's done, what he can do for you. And he says, Jesus is better. Now he says, now, let's talk about three other concepts. Faith, hope, and love. That, that's kind of a trio that God has given us in the first book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And now abideth faith, hope, and Charity, but the greatest of these is the pristine one. So we call Hebrews chapter 11 the faith what? Chapter, the hall of faith. Because God is going to introduce us. He's going to say, listen, all of these people that I'm going to give you some of the, and because really whoever God used to write Hebrews, it was written to Hebrews. The Gentile church would not know all the things that a Hebrew believer knew. It wasn't written primarily to the, to the Gentile people because they were not be as versed on all the things that he's going to talk about, all the types and shadows and the ceremonial laws. Uh, Romans, 
that first book of Paul's writings, once again, it goes from the law to grace, and it, and it, and it shows the believer's relationship to the moral law. That's where we have, for all have, and come short of the glory of God. And then he, how he says, the law was against me, and so forth and so on. He's talking about the moral law. Hebrews is taking us from, from shadows to substance. And he's telling us, look, this has to do with the, the believer's relationship to the ceremonial laws. Most of us, we would get really confused if they started telling us about the two turtle doves and the pigeons and the sacrifice and the heave offering and all the things that have to happen. We would like, whoa, that's a little much, but not if you were Jewish. Not if you were raised in that, if you understood that, if not if you were delivered and you got the book of Leviticus and, and Exodus and all that stuff. Well, they knew all that. That's why they went to the synagogue. Jesus uh, came to fulfill that law. So he's talking about the ceremonial law. But I think he gives at the end three chapters, 11, 12, and 13. 11, he begins with, now faith is the substance of hope for. Then he starts, talks about Abel. Excuse me. Yeah, Abel. And he says, my Abel gave a more uh, perfect sacrifice. Why? Because he went with blood instead of a fruit basket that Cain tried to put on the altar. And God said, I don't need your works. I need my way. I need a blood. But I'm sure Cain wanted to argue. He said, look, I, I don't do blood, but I tell you, I worked hard for these cucumbers and these tomatoes, and these are the best that I can offer, and I want you to accept this. He says, I'm just not going to take it. You don't do well, Cain. <laughs> Go back and kill an animal because that's my way. And, and, and we find Abel to sacrifice. And then, of course, Enoch, he walked with God. Abel shows us God's worship, his way. Enoch shows us his walk. Noah shows us the work. He worked for all those years to build an ark. And he kept on doing the right thing the right way for the right reason in spite of all the problems. And at the end, his result was a big boat and his wife, his two bo three boys, and their wives, and that was it. He would think, for the most part, he was a failure with people. He couldn't convince anyone else to get on that boat with him. But he shows us that our work is not necessarily measured by what we can see, what we can hear, or what we think happens. We do what God tells us. And all these people that did each of those things, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and all the people there, the unknown people and the, the folks of Deborah and Barak and all those folks, all they had to go on was what they had been told by God. When Abraham was, had left the earth, the Chaldees, where he might have had even a restroom inside his house, he, he, had, a, he had a very, very good situation, and the Lord said, leave the earth, the Chaldees, and go out into a land I will show thee. And he went on a lifelong camping trip. I oftentimes joke around about that. One of my favorite, I like camping, it's fun. One of my thing, favorite things about camping is coming home. <laughs> Getting back in my bed, in a, and, and you know, the tent stuff is all right for a couple days, but man, when is this over? Let's get this going. You know, I don't mind splashing myself in the creek and taking a few body baths like that, but after a while, Get me under a hot shower and none, none of that stuff. You know, let's get going. I want to get back in. But you know what? Abraham and Sarah never got back home. They lived in a tent the rest of their life. And everybody that met them said, why are you doing this? Where are you from? Why would you leave there? Because God told us to. 
All they had is what God told them. And he taught his kids. And by the way, I, we can give Abraham a bad rap, but he, he, kept, he kept Isaac doing what he was supposed to do. And then Isaac helped Jacob. And Jacob helped Joseph. And then Joseph, through that lineage, of course, later on came Moses. And Moses choosing to suffer affliction. All of this, chapter 11, is all about faith. And boy, without faith, it's impossible. Please God. And your faith is not based upon a church, a pastor, an experience. It's based upon Christ. This is interesting. Look, if you would please, at chapter 11 of Hebrews. And this, this is always kind of knock my socks off there, so I pull them up real tight before I read this. But look, if you would please, at verse number 24. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughters. And then he says here, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And look at verse 26. Esteeming the reproach of who? Oh, hang on a second. Did Moses know about Christ? He said he esteemed the, 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 the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respected the recompense of his word, or his reward. And by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured as seeing him that is invisible. Just a quick thought real quickly. One of the reasons people do not serve God is they can't trust God. Faith is foundational. Even that verse we said in verse number 6 of chapter 11... Uh, without faith, it's impossible to please him. He didn't believe him that comes to God must believe two things: he that he is, and that he is a rewarder. See what made Moses leave Egypt the first time and come back forty years later is because he calculated reward. He found out he could trust God. Do you know, friends? You might be happier living in Mozambique, Africa in the will of God than you would be living in the plush place here in the, in the United States of America. But if God wants you to do that, don't trade it. Trust the Lord. Don't let fear. Oh, there wasn't, it was, he, he's telling me, he said, man, why did he do all this? Well, because he calculated what God said and he trusted God with the rewarding process. And you can do that. I can do that. The second chapter is a chapter on hope. And it basically gives, it gives a scenario of a one man who is running a race. It starts out that we're compassed about with so great a cloud of what? Yeah. He said, now, now, he said, all these people, the people I just told you about, Abel, where is he? Can you find him on the planet? No. He's been in heaven for a few minutes. Uh, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, a thousand years a day, so it's not a long time for Abel. He's one of the first people to, to, to live and to be born on this planet, but it's not been very long for him to be there. But now he has given, he's sacrificed, he's done it. Now he has gone off of the race course, this race, and he is up in the stands watching. And guess where Abraham is? Where's Enoch? Where's Noah? Where's all those people? Some people that God blessed and took them out of the mouth of lions. Others of them were sawed asunder. They didn't have, some were delivered, some went to death. But all those ones who are in Jesus are now watching. 
And now he says, look, now that we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, whenever you run your race, chapter 12 will tell you, number one, remember the fan base. Remember that you run light. Put, away, put aside every weight and sin which does so easily beset or slow us down. There are certain things that all of us could do better in the Christian life if we would just lay aside some things. Some of us, we spend way too much time on social media. And, and minutes turn into hours and hours into hours every week and, and really days every, uh, every month or two where we have spent our time just looking in our phone and our Facebook and our computer and, and just eating all kinds of things in our eye gate and our ear gate we shouldn't even, and it's a waste. Even if you ignored all the other things that are maybe negative, sometimes it's just a waste. Some people are good at things that don't matter. We just get good at a we get good at a video game. So what? It's just there's not. I mean, I, I think it for entertainment a little bit. All right, that's fine. I'm amazed that sometimes as men who are who are older get caught up with talking about stuff that just doesn't matter a bit. You would think as you get a little older, you would get a sense of urgency about you. I think the devil lulls us into sleep where we just we're doing stupid stuff. We want to retire so we can sit around and watch the world go by. And I think sometimes we need, to be, we need to be engaged in saying, what does God want me to do? By the way, if you're young, you're old, you're a man, you're a woman, one word that is very common in the book of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus is the word sobriety. And it means with purpose. If you're retired, you have a purpose. If you're working, you have a purpose. If you're a man, you have a purpose. If you're young, you have a purpose. You've got to ask yourself, what does God want for my life at this stage? Not just to put in my time. I think it's very important. He said, look, if you're going to run, remember the fan base. He said, number two, remember the focus. Looking unto, that's in chapter 12, a great passage of Scripture. He said, you've not yet resisted against blood, striving against sin. Remember, it's a fight. You, 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 you have not finished. You haven't done all you can do. you still got more inside of you. Every coach wants to get much more out of them. I've, I've watched uh, Brother, uh, Brother Woosley and Brother John Cooper, and I've watched uh, the good old brothers as they coach in our, in our ministry and, and other folks in, in baseball. They, they really get down in this. Come on now. You got, I need all you got. Leave it out on that floor. And they want them. They said, you know, look. They're going, I can't coach. I'm tired. He said, no, come on. You can do it. Those folks who wrestle, you know, come on, now, get down there. Come on, come on. You can do it. Don't give up. Get out of that. Get out of that hold. You haven't yet resisted the blood striving against sin. He said, look, when you run a race, remember the fan base. Remember the focus, Jesus. Not the church, not the pat in the back, not the commendation, not the certificate. All that's good and fine. But we got to die to self, die to criticism, die to compliments. And be alive into Christ. He said, I want you to do that. Then he goes, I want you to remember it's a fight. I want you to remember you have a father who is the disciplinarian. He's chasing you. He'll work with you. You get out of line, he's going to swack you on the backside. He's going to whack you. He's going to, he's going to help you. It's not against you. It's for you. And so if you don't get your bottom bust every now and then by, by the heavenly father, you're not his child. He uses very strong language we're not used to here, but we have it in the Bible that you're not even God's child. If you can do what's wrong and you never get disciplined, you might want to do a check for the neck up, neck up. Make sure you're in it. And then he says, look, if you're running, follow peace with all men, without which no man can see the Lord. He said, stay in your lane. 
Don't get mad at this guy or this guy. Don't spend all your time fighting and arguing with him. Keep going. Stay in your lane, because if you don't stay in lane, you're not going to see the goal. The goal is not uh, accommodation. The goal is Jesus. Stay at it. And then he tells him, watch out for bitterness. It springs up across your raceway, your path. The root of bitterness and, and, and causes you to be troubled. There are some sweet people who have been sweet, but they're not sweet anymore. They might look sweet, but they're not. They're troubled, and they're bothering everybody around them. They're limiting and defiling others because they're all tore up over a root of bitterness. He said, don't do that. He said, lift up your knees. Put up your arms. Get them high. Be careful. Pay attention. Don't let little things um, complicate your life. And then he goes on to say that at the end of chapter 12, our God is a consuming fire. With this in mind, let's go to chapter 13. I want you to follow along with verse number 1. And here, I think, is that final quiz. If Jesus is better, these are things that are going to be in me and in you. Let's just think. That's, that's the question. Let's just ask ourselves. Say it out loud with me. Is Jesus better? Ready? All right. Is he, is he better to me? Am I, am I looking to him? If I'm looking to him, these are things that are going to be in John Wilkerson's life. And you could probably evaluate that with me and form you. Let's look at verse number one. Are you ready? Let's read it together. Let, if Jesus is better, what's going to be something that's going to be a continual part of my life and yours? Brotherly love. Number two, if Jesus is better, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, strangers in the Bible normally are people that are in the household of faith, but you just don't know them. That would be like what you did years ago at pastor school when people needed a place to stay and you put all those bunk beds in your basement. Okay? You were entertaining. You had no clue who was going to be in your house. You were going to find out Monday night down with Brother Hiles in the front. And you just met strangers and you took them in. He goes, if, if, I'm gonna, if Jesus is better, then I'm going to have brotherly love. Number two, I'm going to have hospitality. I'll use what I have to be a help to someone else. I don't have to even know everything about them. I just need to be a blessing if God puts in my heart. Some have entertained angels unawares. So they're all excited about angels. He said, one of the ways you can get excited about angels is serving people. And you might even get one every now and then. Verse number three, remember them that are in bonds and are bound with them. And them that suffer adversity and being yourselves also in the body. He said, look, another way, if Jesus is better, you're going to care for hurting people, people who are going through afflicted time. It'll matter to you. It won't be something you yawn to the prayer request. You'll say, oh, no. Is there anything I can do for them? Or we have someone who's in jail for the cause of Christ. Our brothers and sisters are suffering in China or North Korea or other places. When you hear about that, you know, it's like, I don't want to think about that. It's negative. You'll say, no, it really needs something i got to pray about. I do what, I, what can we do to help them? This is something we'll do. Number four, if Jesus is better, I'll be morally pure. Marriage is what? Let's read verse four together. Marriage is and the bed, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Listen, you got a problem with immorality? It's because you don't think Jesus is better. Not because you're single. Not because you're married to the wrong person. Not because you're not getting your needs met. It's because Jesus isn't enough. He said, look, if Jesus is enough, then you'll be morally pure. If Jesus is enough, verse number five, we'll be content. Let's read it together, can we please? Let your conversation be 
and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, covetousness will be not, that itch for more is going to be abated by my love for Jesus. You all of us need money. We all need things. There's nothing wrong with that. God put us in a world like that. But, but things are very possessive, and God gets a lot of competition. He goes, be, don't be covetous. Don't just always discontent, frustrated because you don't have this, and you didn't, you've been waiting for this, and your break's not come yet. Listen, be content with such things as you have, knowing this. God's never going to leave you nor forsake you. I'm going to stop with that, but I tell you, if you keep going through chapter 13, you're going to find some amazing stuff. You're going to find the fact that prayer, sacrifice, praise. Occasionally I find someone who just doesn't, they don't like to sing the songs. They don't like to hear testimonies of other people. But I, I will tell you, friends, God likes to hear it. We don't sing because I like it and you like it. It's a command of God to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Now, I, I, I receive a blessing. It's not just my personality, your personality. But I do believe we do it because God inhabits the praise of his people. He wants us to sing. I think that the fact that, that to let the redeemed of the Lord, yeah, I will bless the Lord how often? His praise shall continue to my mouth. Uh, I'm not praising, you know, if someone gets saved, someone says, you know, I thank God my neighbor got saved. We ought to say praise God because there's someone else kind of happy about that. God is. If there's rejoicing in heaven, someone came back to the Lord, they're living for the Lord. We ought to say, wow, that's wonderful, because God's happy about it. You're going to see in chapter 13, there's a lot of good things that happen uh, whenever Christ is better. We just named a couple of them. I hope you'll take it home tonight. But you'll do see that chapter 11, faith will be strengthened if Jesus is better. Hope and my journey and my patience through problems will continue if Jesus is better. And I will pass the final exam in chapter 13 of love. As a matter of fact, what makes me hospitable? Love. What makes me uh, care about people in prison or going through adversity? Love. Love is the big challenge in all these things that help us. The book of Hebrews, great book of the Bible. I hope you'll read it.